I want to start with a little Bible trivia this morning. You guys know that we've been going through the book of John, and there's four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are very similar. Mark's the shortest, Luke's pretty long, and Matthew's pretty long. And they have a lot of repeated things, because a lot of people think that Matthew and Luke took Mark's source and another unknown source called the Q source, but that doesn't matter, and they made it a lot longer. And then John comes along, he, his was written last, and it's not like the other three. So it's a little bit different. They all wrote, you know, different authors, they all wrote to a different audience, they all had a different purpose in mind, all four of them. Even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a lot similar, there's some uh, more differences between those three and the book of John. John wrote his book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. So that's what the belief says. That's why John wrote what he did. So my question today is, what is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels? If you said the feeding of the 5,000, then you'd be right. You should have guessed that, because that's what Lauren just read. That's the only miracle that's in all four. Isn't that interesting? Charles Spurgeon says that he, it's in all four Gospels so that we won't forget how much the Lord can do with little things that are yielded to him. So that's why it's in all four. That's what he said. I agree with that statement, but I also think there's another reason for him telling this story and the way he does here in chapter 6. So we're going to unpack a lot of that next week as well and the reasoning for that. But today, I want us to see the comparisons between Jesus and Moses. The big idea, the simple sermon statement, tries to summarize it this morning, I would say that Jesus is the greater Moses who leads God's people, takes care of their every need, and he brings them to salvation. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads God's people, takes care of their every needs, and brings them to salvation. If you remember John chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and he had healed a, a paralyzed person, and then he made his case because they said, hey, you're making yourself equal with God. You're claiming deity, equality with God the Father in heaven. Well, he made his case. And we talked about it over two sermons of how he really is the Son of God. And he demonstrated that through his reasoning, talk about his authority. And then last week, Greg talked about the witnesses that testified the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God. And he was in the city of Jerusalem in John chapter 5. Here in John chapter 6, he's back north again. He's up north with his disciples. And when you compare John's timeline with Mark's account and his timeline, we learn that Jesus had just sent his disciples on a ministry trip, if you will, all around the region of Galilee, the northern region. He sent them out two by two, and he sent them out preaching the gospel and performing works, and they were so excited. A lot of people responded. Great success. And so a lot of people had responded to, to all the ministry that was taking place with the disciples. They came back to Jesus all pumped up. They, a lot of the crowds, the word about Jesus began to spread. And he, Jesus and his followers, they drew the attention of King Herod. And they drew the ire of King Herod as well. So they decided to take a little break. They said, decided to get away. And they, it says that they traveled, in verse 1, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. John is writing a little bit later, and that whole Sea of Galilee got renamed Tiberias after one of the Roman Caesars, Tiberius. So they, some people knew it as the Sea of Tiberias, but it was the Sea of Galilee as well. They go to the east side, 
to get out and away from the crowds and also kind of to, just to get away from Herod's jurisdiction. He didn't have jurisdiction on that east side. It's actually, if you look on a map today, it's the northeast side, what we would call the Golan Heights. It's a hilly region on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where our story picks up today. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through, 1 through 4 here, Jesus is trying to get away, but a large crowd of people who saw all the signs he was doing, they began to look for him. And what I can imagine is, is that they all began, to, they knew where he went, so they all began to travel by foot around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee over to where he was at. And as the crowds traveled, the crowds grew. And they grew because they were telling everybody in the villages, hey, we're going to go see Jesus. You should have heard what he did back and his disciples have been doing. So let's go see him. And the crowds grew and as they began to travel. And they made this journey around the sea. Now the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across and it's about 12 miles from north to south. So it's kind of a ways, kind of a trek around the northern uh, bank of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 4, Jesus, he goes up onto a mountainside to get away, to spend some time with his disciples. And right here, we start to see the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Because Moses, who was Moses? Well, Moses was kind of like the George Washington of his time, of his people. George Washington was our very first president of the country. He was called the father of our country. In fact, many historians will say that if it wasn't for a man like George Washington, we would still be subjects of England today because he was such an amazing, influential leader. In fact, he was so influential that when our country gained their independence, they wanted to make him king. And he said, no, I don't want to be king. So they said, will you be president? So he became president, and he only served for two terms, and then he said, I'm going back to farming. And then all the other presidents for over 100 years followed his example of only two terms in office. And even today, our nation's capital, a state, many public universities, and Many ports, many things are named Washington after George Washington. He's that influential. Now, imagine that he was also the leader of our national religion. Think about what that would, would, what that would look like. Well, you add all that up and you get a sense of who Moses was to the people of Israel. He was used by God to free the Hebrew people from slaves in Egypt. And he led God's people to Mount Sinai where he received God's laws for God's people. And then he met with God, it says in the Old Testament, like a man meets with another man face to face. And then he led the people of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness right up to the promised land. And so the people of Israel, they celebrated their freedom and their formation as a nation every year in the celebration known as the Passover celebration. And in John chapter 6, verse 4, it says the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. So this is the second, by the way, this is the second of John's third mentions of the Passover celebration. So you can see here the similarities in the stories that John, the, the picture that John is painting for us here. Jesus is up on a mountainside, and as he looks, what does he see? But a large crowd of people that are coming to him. Many people have been hearing Jesus' teaching. They wanted to hear more of his teaching, and the crowds had grown. And he sees a huge need on the horizon. They didn't have any food. They didn't have enough food with them. And yet, they had came because of him. You know, we like to do our take hikes. We're on vacation. 
Last weekend, we spent some time in the Appalachian, uh, hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And we were only doing day trips. We just took a small backpack with enough food and water to go out a few miles and then come back. But on the Appalachian Trail, they were people called through hikers. These were people that carried a large pack on their backs because they slept outside on the trail. You know, they were going for days at a time. And we just took a little one. But what we've known is that without proper food and water, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble when you're on the trail. If, uh, one of the sayings that we've heard before is, when your water's half gone, your hike is half done. Like You always have to have enough water and food with you. Well, that is what happens in this situation. A lot of people with little preparation and no resources. You know what? This is a problem that Jesus did not create. And yet, he saw there was a problem and he worked to meet the need. Thank goodness that Jesus is ready to help us in our time of need and to rescue us when we can't rescue ourselves. You see, Jesus already had a plan that he was working. And God is often working in areas that we are unaware of. He's always doing a work in our lives. In verse 5, Jesus asked one of his disciples where they can buy enough bread for these people. And I think he asked Philip because they were near Philip's hometown of Bethsaida. So it's like they were kind of near his hometown, but it, it sounds kind of like a joke, doesn't it? It would be like if our whole church was on a hike on the Appalachian Trail, and I said, hey, Ben, you're from Virginia. Where can we stop and get some food here? You know, He would look at me like, are you crazy, man? What are you talking about? I bet Philip was like, ha ha, good one, Jesus. But Jesus wasn't trying to be funny. It says here that he asked the question because he was testing him. So in other words, this is a faith-strengthening exercise. He wanted to see how Philip and the other disciples would respond because he was about to do something miraculous and he wanted them to understand how amazing this was. He wanted them to see how he was about to work, how truly marvelous this event was about to be. And Philip, he responded in verse 7, 200 denarii, or the equivalent of eight months' wages, he said that still wouldn't be enough to give everybody a single bite of food. And even if we did have the money, where are we going to buy the food? So we don't have the money, we don't have a place to buy food. Like, where is this bread supposed to come from, Jesus? And this passage, it reminds us that we are always going to be confronted with problems that are too difficult for us. We're always going to be confronted with problems that are too big for us to solve. Yeah, we have death, disease, and war. Those are the big ones. But how often do you find yourself powerless in situations all the time? Whether it's things like traffic or the weather or our health, we can't stop ourselves from getting sick. We can't make it rain or not rain, ruining our plans. Who of us can make sure that we're never misunderstood or mistreated? Who of us can control the actions of other people that affects us in so many negative ways? There are things that are out of our control. I feel like that so many days God is just showing me over and over again how powerless I am. That I'm just like Philip. And like Philip, we are quick to offer human solutions. A problem comes to our mind and what do we do? We start trying to think of ways to fix it on our own. We think we have to rely on our own strength and our own minds to fix the problem. 
And Jesus asked the question to get him to think that he can't fix it on his own. He doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the resources. He doesn't have the bread. He can't buy enough food to make everybody happy even a little bit. And you're not going to make everybody happy all the time. It's impossible. And so like Philip, we forget who's standing right there with us is Jesus. He's standing right there. Jesus asked Philip the question so that he would realize that this problem is not a problem for Jesus. He's got things under control. And it was here that another disciple steps in. Andrew steps in to the rescue here. He says he's got a solution. Here is a poor little boy's lunch. Yes, all right, we got it worked out here. Oh, wait a second. It's like five tiny little barley cakes. Barley cakes were what were like little biscuits that poor people ate because they couldn't afford good bread. So it was, and then two fish that were either dried or preserved in some way um, or pickled. So not a really good lunch, honestly. <laughs> but doesn't sound like appetizing food, but hey, it's something. And Andrew seems to show some great faith that Jesus is going to do something, but then he says, oh, what good is this anyway when you have so many people? I want to be like, hey, Andrew, you had it right the first time. Like, see, he's right on the right path, right? And then he's like, oh, what good is this? You know, I got something, now I don't. But the thing is, is that it may look small to you, but our Lord can do amazing things when we offer to him what we have. So don't get discouraged. Keep your chin up. Don't give up now. It may be just a small word of encouragement, but God can use that to encourage another brother or sister in their time of need. It may be a small donation, but Jesus said that the widow's two small coins worth less than a penny was a greater gift than a bag of gold given for self-promotion. It may just be a short prayer, but God works through the prayers of His people. And it may just be a small act of kindness, but listen to me, don't sell God short. Don't put yourself above God and act like that He can't use you for kingdom purposes. That is pride. That's saying God can't use me. No, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. You might say, I don't have enough. I don't have enough resources. I don't have the skills. I don't have the time. I don't have the training. I don't have, I don't have the ability to do this. All I have is a little tiny lunch of five nasty loaves of bread and two small fish. And this is where Jesus says, I'll take that. When you yield what you have to God, He can do amazing things in your life. So don't sell God short. He can use you for His kingdom purposes. Here is a small boy with not very much, but he's willing to give it to Jesus. And Jesus uses it to feed thousands of people so that Jesus is glorified through this. In verse 10, Jesus it says here, Jesus says, have the people sit down. So he tells the disciples to tell the people to sit down. By the way, as a little side note here, this is what we have. It's called an unintended coincidence in the gospel accounts that speaks to the reliability of Scripture. So Mark's account says that there was green grass in the area. Why does Mark say green grass? Well, John doesn't have that detail here, but that fits with John's account. When did John say this event took place? During the Passover time. The Passover is in the springtime. In the Golan Heights, there is green grass in the springtime. In the fall or late summer, there isn't any grass or green grass because the hot sun burns it all off 
They have rain in the spring, kind of like Pittsburgh. <laughs> Lots of rain in the spring. It does make green grass in the Golan Heights only one time of year during the Passover time. So unintentionally, we have a coincidence between Mark's gospel and John's gospel that lends itself to the reliability of Scripture. I mean, it's so amazing when you look at these accounts separately and how they fit together. Another thing that we see here is that Jesus said, tell them to sit down on the, the abundant, lush green grass. He doesn't say all those details, but that's what took place. Tell them to sit down. Well, in another account in Mark, it says that the men sat down. Specifically, the men sat down, and in other words, the women and children. And it says in John that there were 5,000 men who were in attendance and that they sat down in groups of 50s and 100s. Why did the men sit down and the women didn't? All I can imagine is that the kids were running around. You know what I mean? Let's wait till tomorrow, right? All of us are going to bring our all of us adults are going to bring our chairs and sit down, right? But the kids, there's a playground there, kids. There's all kinds of fun stuff you get to do. You're going to enjoy the time, the picnic together. So I imagine that they said, "Okay, men, you're going to take care of the families, so you sit down, we'll pass it out, you get the food, and you can take it back to everybody else in your family unit. So there wasn't just 5,000 people. There was probably like 10 to like maybe 15,000 people, or even maybe a few more. Some scholars think maybe upwards of 20,000 people that were in attendance. That's like the PPG arena. That's massive. That many people spread out on the hillside. That is a, a ton of people. And so Jesus takes his little tiny loaves of barley cakes that he could probably like hold in two hands. And notice it says that he doesn't bless the food. We always say that, right? Who wants to bless the food? We don't, he doesn't bless the food. He blesses God. He gives thanks to God. He probably said something along the lines of the common Jewish thanksgiving, like, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. See, they would bless God for the gift of abundance. That's what we do when we pray for our food. We're not really praying for our food, Right? We are asking God to bless the hands that prepare it and that God would be blessed and we thank him. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for what he's done and that we get to enjoy what he's done. And then Jesus starts passing it out and miraculously as he passes it out, it begins to multiply and the food just keeps on coming, keeps on coming. And some people will try to explain this miracle away and I've heard people try to explain this by saying, well, you know what, everybody brought their food. They were just hiding it under their cloaks and when they saw that little boy's heart, it warmed their hearts, and they brought their food out too. That was the miracle that took place. A miracle of a changed heart. I don't believe that for one second. Okay? Just so you know. I think Jesus miraculously multiplied the food. It wasn't just a, mir a miracle of generosity. It was a miracle of Jesus. He multiplied the food. God provided to every man, woman, and child was there. God had provided it in the past, and Jesus did the same thing here today. And you think of Moses and the parallels in the wilderness where the people, the multitudes of people were hungry when they were traveling with Moses. They didn't have enough food. They couldn't carry enough food with them when they left Egypt. They couldn't plant food and wait for it to grow. And they, they couldn't forage enough food for like maybe upwards of a million people that were traveling. And so they were hopeless and they didn't have enough food. They said they were going to die. And so God provided quail in the evening time and then in the morning time, there was a, a fine mist-like thing on the ground, a fine flake-like thing, it says in Exodus, fine as frost on the ground. And when they went out, they said, what is it? Which in Hebrew sounds like manha. What is it, they said. And so they called it manna. What should I call it? Or what is it? 
what, what are we having today? Let's have, what is it, you know? I, I knew of a restaurant called I Don't Care. So I asked my friend once, where do you want to eat? And he goes, I don't care. And he, he said, okay. That's where we went. We went to I Don't Care restaurant. That person was like, this is a great way to, to figure out where you're going to eat for dinner. I don't care. Okay, let's go to I Don't Care restaurant. And they, that's where I ate restaurant. That's where I ate at. And that's what they did. They went out and they said, what is it? And they were able to gather as much as this what is it, as much of this manna as every day as they could eat. And I, in Exodus 16, it's explained like this, that they gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, which was about two quarts, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I, I love what happened there with the manna. It's like God provided just enough for everybody of what they needed. Jesus keeps passing out the food, and it says in verse 11 that he distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He, they could take as much as they wanted. I always tell my kids, take what you want, but eat what you take. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Take whatever you want, but eat whatever you take. And if you need it, take it. Jesus loves to show us that his provision is what we need. He provided for everything they needed. He provides us with everything that we need. And when Jesus supplies, it's never too little. It never runs out. And Jesus, he loves to go above and beyond what anybody could have thought was going to happen or what anybody could have imagined what was going to happen. Because when everyone had their fill, he told his disciples to gather everything that was left over so that nothing was lost or nothing was wasted. And I love that too. Jesus never wastes anything. Nothing of his will ever be lost. He shows his disciples that he cares, and he illustrates that by showing that nothing of his is ever going to be lost. If Jesus cares enough to make sure that none of his leftovers are lost or wasted, how much more will he make sure that none of his people are lost? Just like Moses, thousands of years earlier, he cares for each one of us. And he provides the food that we need to take care of us. And he is going to hold on to us no matter what we're going through. And after the feast was over, it says they gathered 12 baskets full. Now, isn't that interesting, you know? All these similarities to Moses in the wilderness, a lot of people on the hill feeding food, everybody taken care of, and at the end of the day, they gathered together the baskets full, and there were 12. A lot of people will say, hey, there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? Isn't this the symbolism that God, he made a covenant with his people and took care of all of their needs? Or a lot of people say, well, now there's 12 disciples. Each one of them got to carry a basket. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes sense too. There is that number 12 that appears a lot of times in Scripture. We don't know exactly, you know, of the meaning behind it. We're just speculating, right? But there is a lot of, I mean, you've got to notice that there's 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples there. And the reaction of the, the crowd, they recognized something amazing had taken place because it says that they were amazed in verse 14. They, were, they saw the sign that had been done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they make the connection to, with Moses. They go back to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where um, we are told that God had said this is, uh, that, that, that Moses said, there's going to be a prophet that's going to come after me, 
and he's going to speak my words. He's going to speak the words of God, one who is greater than me. And so they remembered that, and they said, you are the prophet. Just like Moses, like, but better, you are the prophet that, that is going to come, that God is going to send. And then they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted to impose their will on what Jesus was doing and said, okay, now we got it, right? Perceiving that they were going to make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again into the mountainside, it says in verse 15. So Jesus sees this is coming, and he's like, no, 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 no. And he withdraws from there. He's not going to have any of it. Just like Jesus refused Satan's offer to make him ruler of the world, he rejected these human beings' attempt to crown him kings, and he leaves the scenes. He leaves the scene. Why does he do this? Because isn't he the truth king? Didn't he rightfully deserve it? Well, yeah, he did, but you know what? He uh, was not going to go by any person's decision. He was doing it his way. And I love that this is, this is near the time of Passover. So another reason why he withdrew, he knew the crowd was getting excited, at least maybe not all the crowd, but there was like this intense, intense nationalistic fervor. And so some of them said, hey, we're going to score a great political win. We're going to make Israel great again. So you're going to be our king. We're going to be, um, we're going to like, we're going to like all dress the same. We're going to get all excited. And some of them were, were, were called zealots. So they were like, hey, let's get a militia together and let's do it, man. Let's take our capital back. But Jesus had other plans. He's not going to fit into our plans. He's not going to do our bidding. And so Jesus withdraws to the mountainside again and at this time, he sends his disciples on ahead of him. He needs some prayer and solitude. Maybe he's exhausted from serving all day. And he's like, I just need to rest tonight, you know? You guys go on ahead in the boat. I'm going to go spend some time with my father like, I, I, like he did a lot of times in solitude and quiet. And he, he's, I want to break right here for a second, though, and, and go back to Moses, you know? After leading the nation of Israel out of slavery, Moses finds himself in a terrible predicament. So he's leading all of God's people, and he's being chased by the Egyptian army, and he comes dead end into the Red Sea. And he's stuck. He knows that it, when the Egyptian army catches up to him, they're going to be slaughtered. There's nowhere for him to go. He's trapped. And what does God do? He says, go down to the sea, and um, I he hold up his staff, and God split the waters sent a mighty wind to dry up the land, and the Israelites were able to walk through the Red Sea on, in safety to the safety on the other side. And then God allowed the water to come crashing back on the Egyptian army, and it, they were able to be free again. And so you think about that story, and you look at John chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, and what has happens here is that Jesus puts his disciples into this boat. And it's about... 25 feet long by about 8 feet wide. They could have about 15 to 20 people on this boat. And actually, archaeologists have discovered a boat from the time of Jesus that's this size and shape. And it was buried in mud until somebody dug it up, and now it's in a museum. So a boat just like the type of boat they could have been on. And he tells them, row to the other side, about 5 or 6 miles to where they were going, across you know, from, from the east side to the northwest side. So they were supposed to be rowing across there. But about halfway through, the waters get choppy because a high wind was, powerful wind was blowing. And it's interesting too, what would, did God send to split the Red Sea? But a strong wind. It was the same word that's used here. A high wind split the Red Sea. 
and a high wind caused the disciples to be, their boat to be rocked back and forth on the water. And the disciples, they were rowing, rowing, rowing. They had rowed for like many, many hours. They should have already been across the sea, but they weren't. They were only halfway across. And they weren't going to make it. They weren't going very far. They weren't getting where they should be. And all of a sudden, they look up and they see Jesus walking on the water out to, out to them. Like, how crazy is that? Jesus um, could have just met them on the other side. But again, he's doing a work where they can see how amazing he is, this miraculous event. So, of course, when they see him, they get terrified. And he says to them in verse 20, Do not be afraid, it is I. That phrase, it is I, it's also translated in different parts, I am. Don't be afraid, I am. That's the personal name that the Lord said to Moses. If, If they ask who I am, tell them I am who I am. And so now Jesus is walking on the water. They're afraid. He says, don't be afraid, it is I. So with these two acts, Jesus identifies himself as one like Moses, feeding the people and crossing the sea. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, what do you want out of Jesus? Do you want someone to do your will? Someone to serve your needs and your desires? If we want Jesus to fix all our problems, but we don't want to have to follow him and obey him, then we're just like those people that want a puppet king. We want another, if we just want another Moses to try to get us out of our trouble and make things a little bit more comfortable, then we don't really understand who Jesus is or what he's asking. He is so much more and so much greater. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads God's people, who takes care of every one of our needs. And he's the one who brings us to salvation. So we can trust in him for our eternal salvation and we can trust in him for our daily needs as well. So the only way that we get to come to Jesus is to lay down your expectations. Put aside your requirements. Let go of the strings and follow Him. And when you do, you're going to find out that not only is Jesus greater than Moses, He is greater than anything you could ever imagine.